Welcome to episode five of Dirt Stories. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Becca Grebe, and today I'm chatting with Desi Mattel-Anderson, Chief Wrangler at the Field Innovation Team, about preparing for and dealing with a crisis. Let's dive in. All right. Welcome back. Hey, Desi. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Becca. Great to be here. Thanks for, uh, for joining us today. So we're talking about crisis management and disaster relief. Um, I know we first spoke to you for Dirt Stories blog a few months ago when we chatted about natural disasters and how to get ready for them, how to deal with a, di- a disaster when it strikes. Um, we couldn't think of a better expert to join us today. So we're excited to dive a little deeper. So let's get started. So I know you've been talking to um, a couple people on our team, a couple people with Dirt Stories about who you are and what you do. I would love to hear from you a little bit about your background and um, your current role right now. Absolutely. Um, I'm Desi. I'm the Chief Wrangler of the Field Innovation Team. And the quick story of the background is I got involved in emergencies a decade ago after an active shooter was on a campus in Illinois uh, back in 2008. And so from there, I've just had the opportunity to work at local community levels and move into the Urban Area Security Initiative, which helped regionally in Wisconsin. And eventually, due to the work of, of my team and I and the communities that we partnered with in disasters, whether it be flooding, wildfires, hurricanes, you name it, um, we had the opportunity to Um, go to uh, FEMA, to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, where we helped out nationwide and had an an opportunity to deploy into the Boston Marathon bombings, to Hurricane Sandy. Um, And now, uh, outside of the government, um, I'm back working with communities with the field innovation team, and we get to do disasters not only in the United States, but we work with incredible communities in all over the world, including Canada, Mexico, Europe, and in Australia, New Zealand, and you name it. So we feel really um, honored to be able to continue to do good work, but it's fun and fascinating, and it's always a very lively day. <laughs> you have quite uh, you have quite the story, quite the background. I don't even know where to go from there. There's a there's a lot in there. Can you tell me a little bit about the urban urban securities unit? Is that right? Yeah, it's the Urban Area Security Initiative, and it was a program that came out of Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. It was something to help fortify and continue to strengthen our cities and our communities. Um, And this was more specifically within the United States. But that work was uh, interesting because we, although um, I was a lot more on the Homeland Security side to begin with, uh, in the town, in the city that I grew up in, Um, there was a massive flood that struck back in 2010. And unfortunately, this is a community that really needed some resources and they didn't get this federal declaration. Um, It was desperately needed by individuals who had just uh, suffered a lot from from the floodwaters. So what the team did was, and this is kind of what we do as an organization, is we come up with innovative solutions on the fly. And this is something that I know the construction industry, because we work very closely with them, uh, can 
fully understand, but sometimes you're on a job site and you have to pivot and figure a solution out very quickly because it can mean that lives are on the line when you're using heavy equipment, uh, when you're operating in the field, or you're on a deadline that's just coming up very quickly. So in this situation, um, we had this flood and it was my first big flood um, working in the Urban Area Security Initiative and helping to support a community. Um, but we had, we had a chance to really change and define that flood by reassessing the damage that had been done in the city, um, in communities. And we were able to change the policies at the federal level and we were able to go back to the president and get that denial overturned and get these hardworking citizens, a lot of them work in breweries and, uh, and, and are in factory positions, they were able to get some funding to get themselves back on their feet and, and get better. So that was really my first taste of a larger, or I would call it a mid-sized flood in the Midwest. Wow, what an amazing company, that is huge. Thank you. Are, was, there, was there a moment where you were like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. We're, we're, you know, I'm founding the field and innovation team and here's why. Was there that pivotal moment for you? It was, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's, it's, it very much evolved. I feel like um, the field innovation team found me and found us as, as communities uh, worldwide now doing disaster response and looking at innovative solutions uh, to solve in real time and save lives. Uh, but we had seen a gap in the emergency response realm. A lot of people, even 10 years ago, did not believe that innovative practices and thinking on your feet would be something that you should be doing in response. But in reality, we all know, as we see in this global pandemic with COVID-19, um, we have to be able to think on the spot and come up with innovative solutions because in a crisis, whether it's local, uh, national, or global, um, we have a lack of resources, we have a lack of personnel, we have a lack of time um, or energy to give and devote to the response. So we've got to find ways to come up with innovative ways to help our men and women who are responding to, to save those lives. So I, I really feel like the, the movement and this gap uh, found us, and then we were able to take and, and really harness this to work with not only government, but great private sector partners and um, organizations around the world to start to implement them in response. So it was really, we saw this gap, um, we saw an opportunity and we built from that um, an organization that uh, still deploys today. That's amazing. So you work on, on quite a few different projects. I know I've taken a look on your website. You talk about response, crisis, problem solving, that real-time solution, of course, I definitely want to circle back to COVID in a little bit. Um, are there any particular projects that you're, or scenarios that you've worked on that you're most proud of or you've seen the biggest impact with? Yeah, um, every project is so unique and different. Uh, we definitely, wow, there's so many great projects. Um, one project I really, um, I still to this day feel very proud about, I'll talk about one from Canada and one from the United States. Uh, one of the projects, we'll start with Canada, um, there was an incredibly brave community back in 2013 who had experienced a flood. I hate to keep talking about floods, but I guess we're in flood season and happy to give examples of the Boston Marathon bombing or some other, if you would like to talk hurricanes or typhoons uh, in a minute. But, um, but I was really proud of this one community there, the town of High River in Alberta, Canada. Um, have you been to the town of High River? I haven't been to High River, no. 
it is a beautiful community. Um, Heartland, the movie is based uh, in the town of High River. It's a okay. very um, just uh, incredibly hearty, um, good folks, good-hearted folks who believe in their community. Um, they are they are the I guess the sister town to Calgary, and Calgary is uh, much larger. But right. the town of High River and Calgary and the surrounding communities were struck by flooding in 2013. It was a lot of fresh net, which large amounts of snow reserve. And then this storm that hit up against the Canadian Rockies and basically all that condensation, that water precipitation along with that snow reserve um, took over the foothills and just um, flooded the area. I mean, to give you the extent of how bad the flood was, there is a, a Calgary holds the biggest zoo uh, in Alberta, the largest zoo, and they evacuated, it had to be 400 animals, Whew. approximately. Yes, wow. uh, they left the hippos and the giraffes, and these giraffes are knee deep in water. I think one hippo did escape, they did find it, but the point is this flood was huge. So even the zoo on St. George Island was completely um, inundated by water. Uh, but right next door was the town of High River and they were um, just devastated by this flood and a lot of people lost um, their homes. Uh, there was a lot of concern. There's still conversations about what happened from this town to this day. Um, but they they caught them they picked themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, many of them didn't have a lot. Some people over Christmas that year were were living in their garages um, just to survive what had happened to them. But they didn't see this as the end for them, and so they gathered with us in the field house to figure out how they were going to help support their community. And so I thought we were going to talk about flood response and mitigation, and they said, "Oh no." We're gonna talk about what the second disaster was, and that was the surge of volunteers that came in and inundated our town. They had approximately 10,000 volunteers, uh, I think that number's pretty correct, come in. And so almost to every person in, the t in that town, was, there was a volunteer. And wow. they wanted to, yeah, they wanted to find a way to harness in the future this incredible workforce, but in an organized and very uh, concrete fa fashion where it could be a tool for them rather than just having people everywhere. So we gathered in George Lane Park and what I'm proud of this is we worked on a software app um, and at the time this is very novel, this is back in 2016, where it allowed to organize volunteers um, remotely. Uh, you could log into the app, you could put in your assignments and you could look to see what tasks are needed. And as tasks build up, then they would go away. So as you're driving to the town, you could figure out what you're gonna do that day, where you needed to report and when. And if you didn't have a test for the day, you know, the app would thank you and say, come back the next day and we'll, we'll do this. So obviously this happened after the, the flood back in 2016, so three years later, but they continued to mobilize and build out that application um, with a, the emergency director at the time, Carly Benson. And so it's one of my favorite stories because there was a technology application, but what was cool about it is they went through something incredibly devastating and dark, but here they were um, surrounded and gathering in St. George, uh, it's called St. George Lane Park to, to celebrate. The mayor even came out and um, they're stronger for it. So that's a story that I just love. Wow, isn't that amazing? The power of, of humans and community coming together. Oh, it really is. Wow. And 
Then I do have one for the U.S. as well. I mean, there's certainly stories all over the world, um, but one of the ones I love about the United States was we had a um, we had to figure out a mudslide. This well, I could talk about the mudslide. I'll give you a choice. We can talk either about the mudslide or we could talk about the border crisis with U.S. and Mexico. Oh, let, let's start with the mudslide. I'm interested in both. Awesome. Well, the mudslide, uh, I was proud of the team because we partnered up with some of our Texas partners and we had a huge mudslide that struck uh, Oso, Washington. It's actually the community of Steelhead Haven. And this is a big logger community, um, unincorporated, so small, but they had about, I think it was approximately, it was over 40 deaths. I want to say it was 43 to 47 deaths, which for an unincorporated community, that's your neighbor, that's your family member, that's that's your friend that you go out and have a beer with. So that was incredibly devastating for this community. Um, they were very concerned about their search and rescue teams and what they were going to do to support during this mudslide. Um, and they were afraid that if they went out in the mudslide in recovery efforts that they might have a subsequent landslide that would unfortunately create more victims and hurt their responders. So they had our team come up to help support. And we, again, worked with the incident command. Um, and we flew these drones with our Texas partners seven times around the mudslide to get some data and some imagery. Um, we then took that data, which the unfortunately, the drones didn't have a high enough resolution. We took that data, and then we went to the state of Washington and worked with their partners to get LIDAR data, which the construction industry is very familiar with. Um, and we were able to create this 3D printed topography map and show and make recommendations on where the search and rescue teams should go each day, depending on the weather and the stability of, of the topsoils after this major mudslide. So I was very proud of the team because this was a whole community effort. Um, and it took not just the search and rescue team and the field innovation team, it took these technologists working all together to come up with a plan to keep these search and rescue teams safe. Wow, that's incredible. So where, where do you fit in in all this and leading these projects? They call me the Wrangler. Um, I, I like to go by Desi. Um, my job really in this whole piece is to help problem solve. Um, I don't hold all the answers, but the team, because of the diversity of people on the team and the way that they approach the challenges, um, I help to put that together. And sometimes I come up with a good idea, but a lot of times it's the community or my team who comes up with an even better idea. And so that's basically my role. Um, the second thing that I help to do is we have uh, for years tried to figure out a lot of organizations and institutions, including Harvard University, has tried to figure out how do these people come in here and create these solutions in 24 to 72 hours? It seems nearly impossible that you could put on a robotics petting zoo during a border crisis, and that would end up being the solution that's needed. Uh, it's unusual that in a civil war, um, you're put into the Middle East and you are putting out a psychosocial chatbot and helping to support um, a war-torn country and help with the education. So the team does these kind of interesting, but yet sometimes radical solutions. We've even had a semi-aquatic drone who can fly and swim um, for different- <laughs> That's awesome. I know. So, so the other piece of what I get to do is we have this three-step design process, this three-step prep, and it's simple three steps 
that we use to solve in crisis and catastrophe. But those three steps are also the things that you can use in your day-to-day -day life. And so sometimes as the Wrangler, my job is to keep us on track and going through the design process and get us to a solution in those 72 hours. Mm -hmm. Chief Wrangler, what a title. I love it. Thanks. I think it's pretty, it's pretty cool that you're acknowledging the team like that and how it kind of plays out like a puzzle and everyone kind of has their, their piece that they contribute. I think that's, that's really cool. And, and that mudslide project, that's a really interesting initiative to, to have the 3D map printed out to help you visualize and strategize what you're going to do and how you're going to approach it. I think that's really cool. Very innovative. It's a pretty amazing movement and effort, but yeah, a lot of, lot of kudos to the team and probably even more kudos to the communities we work with because a lot of times they actually hold the key and the answer. Yeah, I think that's very true. I agree. I want to, uh, I want to jump back to, to you as the, the chief wrangler for a second. I'm probably not going to do your background justice right now, but you have, you have a pretty wild background. I know you, um, you worked with Homeland Security and their emergency management office. I know you, you've lectured, you know, at Harvard, Yale, UC Berkeley, um, and you've attended the National Preparedness Leadership Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about your path to get there? That's a very unique professional and, and formal education path. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started that path and got there? Yeah. Um, Humble beginnings. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider, um, I am almost six feet tall. So I'm a very tall person in general, like from a physical standpoint, but, um, but from a, just, uh, my hometown is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I, I lived in the Midwest my entire life. Uh, my mom was the first to, to go to college of the entire family. And uh, we still believe in our family, whether you get a trade degree you go to college or you go another path, um, as long as you take it as far as you can go and, and keep going, it's amazing. And that's, that's kind of been the, my family's you know, motto since I grew up. So I had no intention of leaving Wisconsin, um, nor did I have any intention of you know, running into uh, the bombings in the Boston Marathon or joining FEMA at one point or um, having some of the opportunities so it's been, it has been, you're right, it's been a wild ride, but, um, but it's, I truly think that when you are passionate about something and you have something very hard happen to you, and, and it doesn't have to be a crisis, it could be something very, very individual and personal um, that isn't uh, hitting a collection of people, but that active shooter and having that response during that time or the lack of response, because I certainly don't think that um, I did my job uh, back when I was in a civilian role in 2008, I, I'd never been in a disaster before. But I think that the passion and sort of the experience of going through that and realizing that everyday people like myself um, can be in um, an emergency and in a crisis. And we all, we have to be prepared. We've all got to be able to pick ourselves up and make it happen and do this innovation in real time. So it, like I said, humble beginnings. And I still feel uh, like I'm that same you know, woman growing up in the fields in the Midwest in Wisconsin that I, that I am now. Um, but I do believe that, and I'm empowered to believe that we can all be responders. And so the past been fantastic and it has been incredibly wild. Um, and, but it's also been great because 
I know that I'm not alone in this journey and certainly with COVID-19, um, we're all in this together. Yeah. Yeah. I think now more than ever, we're really starting to come together as a community. I think it's, it's a wild time. That's for sure. I can definitely see how, you know, your mission to empower humans to create cutting edge disaster solutions is really playing a role now more than ever. Definitely. This podcast is sponsored by Dozer, the world's first heavy equipment rental e-commerce solution. Search equipment rentals online anytime at dozer.com. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I know you were in Las Vegas at Con Expo. Yeah. What, what was that like for you? How, how was it? It was amazing. Um, I love working with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. They're constantly on the cutting edge of what's going on. And although um, no one could have predicted a global pandemic would be hitting the United States just after Con Expo was closing up um, shop that week in Las Vegas, um, we certainly, they know that the frequency and intensity of disasters are increasing. So we're going to see our work crews, our construction crews, um, they also work power and utilities, as you know, with IQ in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, whoever you are, when you're on the front line, uh, there's, there are emergencies and we all have to be prepared. So being able to start looking at implementing the three-step prep with the construction industry was fascinating because a lot of these guys and girls, they are dealing with challenges every single day, whether it be supply chain, logistics, something on the job site, it could be safety and management. Um, they have to get things done. They have a timeline to get these things done, but big and crazy things can happen. So the, the actual disaster simulation labs we ran were incredible. The stories that came out of people's personal experiences, including a gentleman who afterwards uh, stayed after to tell me a story about surviving um, hurricanes that were coming over Puerto Rico, and then helping to build bridges um, afterwards in order to create sustainability and to help amplify the supply chain and the logistics on the island. That was fascinating. So there's a lot of big hearts and a lot of wisdom that comes with this industry. So Con A, Con Expo was not just about us delivering the latest and greatest of what we've been doing in emergencies and teaching this three-step prep process that you can use in your day-to-day -day life and put it into a catastrophe as well. Um, it was also an opportunity for us to sit and listen and learn. Uh, so very fascinating. And yeah. yeah, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great. There's never been a better time to talk about innovation and preparedness. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Yes. So with the COVID-19 pandemic growing, you know, larger across North America every day, how did that change the feeling around your crisis management session or did it impact that at all at Con Expo? It definitely, um, so while we were there, um, obviously things were ramping up in Italy and Europe was certainly seeing um, larger numbers. Uh, the, the United States starting to get serious. Um, Canada has, has done a fantastic job of locking things down and trying to flatten that curve. Um, so we did start to see, um, actually interestingly enough, we had not only a lot of, I mean, Con Expo, Con Egg is from people from all over. We did see even an indige indigenous tribe um, out from Alberta, Canada, who joined us 
in our second session as, as COVID was being starting to have a conversation. So we had some Canadians, Americans, and some others from other countries uh, joining us during the lab. And what I noted was that people were concerned and they wanted to do the right thing. Uh, and certainly what we were dealing with in the disaster simulation lab was a historic flood in Las Vegas, which was mirrored off of what happened in 1975 when 700 cars were washed basically out of the Las Vegas Strip and the Caesar Palace parking lot was inundated with water. Uh, but we started to compare that to COVID-19 and I, I found that um, although people were concerned about what was happening and where things were going, uh, they were starting to already come up with solutions on how they were going to help support their communities. And I found that really engaging and inspiring to, you know, think about what, what's going on, start planning, and future casting out how they could help to support. Um, so I found that really quite inspiring. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That's, wow, that's a big topic. It's a huge topic, yeah, and it's something very historical for all of us because we haven't really seen a global pandemic at this level. Uh, we certainly have seen SARS, um, and we've seen the avian bird flu and many other um, diseases come, come our way, but really the last big um, disease that, that struck the globe was the plague uh, at the turn of the century, um, which was a time of great invention, invention and um, art and literacy, literary works that came out of people quarantined. Um, so I'm hoping that even though many of us are, are I'm currently quarantined, I, I don't know if you are. Mm, uh, I am. Yeah, but I'm hoping that people use this as a time to come up with solutions in real time, just like we do with our team, because we're, we're in this together. And this is certainly something that's impacting people's businesses as well as people's health. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, just sitting at home alone in isolation as I, I look through social media channels and I read the news. And I think, especially, you know, over here in Ontario, we're starting to see um, everyone's starting to get on the same page with our, our thoughts around COVID and our reactions to it. But at the same time, I, I feel personally like everyone's kind of at a different place on the scale. Like some people are maybe re more ready to take it on. Other people aren't sure quite what to do or what their role is. So I guess a good question for you as a leader in preparedness and crisis management is how do you, how do you set the tone for what an appropriate reaction is to a global pandemic? Or, or what is your advice for someone listening to this? when they're trying to figure out how they fit into this and what they should or should not be doing. Yeah, I've had some time to think about this because we are in the middle of this global pandemic and I think it comes down to three things that we can all do. Um, obviously, I, I believe uh, one of them will be the three-step prep, but I'll get to that in a minute. One is whether you are leading a crew or you are yourself um, holding down the fort with your family, is very clear communication and just stick to the facts. Let that be your guide and, and knowing what's going on. And that means listening to all sides um, and trying to, as much as possible, be agnostic and not political and trying to get the right facts to keep your family safe and your community and your neighbor safe. So that's one, get the clear communication, get those facts. Um, number two, uh, create trust 
within your network and that should be already established so if you're running a construction crew these are your guys and girls you know them you know their families you know how they may be feeling during this if a job has been canceled because people are in quarantine um, they're obviously concerned about how they are going to continue to afford uh, their families so be there to create that trust and and you might feel that too um, you might be thinking is are these jobs going to continue or is am i going to be canceled out for the next six months and so yeah. kind of thinking about how you can trust is is really important and that coming together as a team um we we come up with solutions to to how we can continue to run businesses um, and then the third thing is most importantly we need to be empowered fear is a is a, is a, is, a, is unfortunately it, i don't think it's a useless emotion because i certainly think fear can play a role in if you're in immediate survival mode and needing to fight or run away or even to hide um, but in this situation we need to take that fear and galvanize it to empower each other and so as mentioned we run the three step prep which we did in the disaster simulation labs to get people with the muscle memory thinking about how they can come up with solutions. So just because we may be in quarantine or if we are considered essential services and we're not, use those steps, those three steps to get yourself out of a rut, um, to help your neighbor, to solve a challenge in your community. And if we all do that, uh, we'll be better for it. Yeah, I like that three-step method. I think that's really important for people to pay attention to and we're trying to to prepare for a crisis ourselves as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about fear and I think that's, that's really interesting because, you know, we're reading the news, we're following our social media threads. We're, we know that hundreds of thousands of people have died. How yeah. do you, or how do we as a community use fear and, and translate those feelings into being more prepared for what's to come in the future how do how do we enable ourselves to do that no it's i love this question and i love this question because i've been hearing almost every company organization agency com crisis communication experts say in these uncertain times and what i'd like us to all say is yes in these uncertain times we can certainly do things together. We have the power to change this and to create a reality that's better for all of us. So I would say the best thing we could do is take that fear and take what you feel is an uncertainty and know that it, in, in all certain terms, you can be an innovator and you can create something that's better for the future. And even if we're dealing with some challenges and some obstacles, think of it as a way to get past it. So rather than align with that fear, take that energy and put it towards problem solving for your, yourself, for your family, for your community, for your elderly neighbor. And if we all do that in our communities right now and across the globe, we're gonna come up stronger from this. So yeah, take, like I said, take the uncertainty, and make sure you understand an uncertain world doesn't mean it's it's very certain that you can be an innovator and you can do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice for our listeners to take away as well. I think it's it's hard when we're getting our, you know, knowledge is power too. So we're reading the news and we're we're following our social media threads, but I think the more we know, the more we feel empowered to make those changes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So something we've been talking about uh, a lot over the COVID-19 pandemic as it continues to progress and evolve is technology and what it's doing for businesses. So we are, we're at home, we're social distancing, we're trying to isolate as much as possible. And what that means for a lot of businesses is we're trying to work from home if we can. A lot of businesses, especially in construction, we, we can't work from home. So what we're trying to do is, you know, use technology to our advantage as much as possible. And it's not always possible with construction, but you know, where it is possible, we're trying to make do. What role does technology play in your crisis management plans? Um, and do you think that there's an opportunity to lean on technology more in times of crisis? Definitely. Um, this is an interesting discussion about man and machine. Um, at the heart of the construction industry, it's our people, it's our guys, it's our teams. It really is. It's that human element. Um, but this is an interesting time with what is going on with the global pandemic to think about how technology can help automate in the interim. And certainly it's still, humans are still at the helm and they are necessary in order to make this happen. But until we can get back on our job sites, there is definitely analogy to some of the robotics and the unmanned vehicles that we use that would be able to uh, translate from the catastrophe and the disaster site to a job site in construction. Um, so to give an analogy, you know, we have used unmanned vehicles like drones. Uh, we've flown them in microstorms in mudslides. Uh, we've also used um, unmanned uh, physical vehicles that uh, that can roll and can move over debris piles. Um, we've done uh, work with um, unmanned sailboat um, and semi-aquatic robotics, uh, definitely during floods and major catastrophe that has that handles water. Um, and those are all things that can be used to help support uh, situational awareness for us so we know what's going on in a disaster site. It's helped us to move cargo and payloads um, when necessary, and we can't get a human in there to do it. Um, and it's been an opportunity for us to get better calculations of where, what we need to do next, and sometimes even automate with algorithms to show us this is the projected path of where we need to go with this project um, so that our teams can actually be more efficient when we can get them in. So how does this relate to the construction industry? Well, there's a few things. One is situational awareness is, um, is king. So if something's happened or a site is, um, no one can be on site, this is an opportunity to get things in that are unmanned to give you footage and surveillance. And you can continue to map out, even if you're in quarantine, what's going on on the site. Um, so that's one. Number two is if you need to get payloads places, whether it be to a place that a human can't get to, um, or you need to get something to someone, but you don't wanna do it person to person, this is where a quad rotor or a fixed wing or another type of unmanned air vehicle, a, a drone uh, in essence, can go out and drop off payloads, whether it be water, medicine, um, or it could be construction equipment. So there's a lot of ways that where we're using unmanned vehicles and robotics to help support us. Um, one final one that I didn't mention is we have programmed chatbots. So whether you use Siri or Alexa or one of those types, those are all chatbots that you can have a community, you can talk to a computer and it can talk back to you. 
But if you're unable to get people out to answer basic questions and you have, let's say, a, a, a workforce that is green or there are specific things about that job site that everyone needs to know, rather than having someone constantly have to repeat uh, these specific questions, this is something, a chatbot is something they can provide to help automate and create efficiency on, on the workforce. Mm -hmm. So those are just a few ideas. Yeah, that's great. I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about using tech, you know, to support manpower and technology really is helping us to work smarter and be more efficient overall. And, you know, your tips around situational awareness and leveraging tools like chatbots, I think that's really smart in helping us to, to be more efficient as we try and manage our businesses through this time and through these changes. Definitely. So we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot today and I appreciate your time. I think it's, it's, it's a, a weird, a weird world right now. And we're all trying to, to handle COVID to the, to the best of our ability. And I have a feeling um, this won't be the last we'll be speaking with you around, around this pandemic and what it means for us. So just kind of one final question for you. What can we expect to see or hear from you in the upcoming months? What are you working on right now? We are working um, on a couple things. Uh, we've been requested and working with 26 cities around the world on response to COVID-19. Um, solutions began about two weeks ago. Uh, we, like I said, we try to do things in 24 to 72 hours. This is very different because typically we're being invited into a community and we're physically there with the team responding with the incident command. Um, so the projects are ongoing, but I can, if you'd like, I could share a couple of the solutions that the team has developed. I would love that. That's great. Um, we had a, a, a call from uh, the city of Redmond's emergency director, Dr. Patty Jean Hooper, uh, they were uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, they're a community just outside of Seattle. Seattle um, was a epicenter for when COVID-19 struck. Um, so certainly they were one of the first communities to, in the United States, I, I should say, to really start to think about how they can do some innovation in real time. And so um, the emergency director called me up and said, you know, we would like to find ways to support. We've run out of personal protective equipment and the national stockpile is dwindling. Um, what could we do to get people in the community um, to use what they have in their homes in order to allow for what is left of the N95s, the Tyvek suits, and the face shields to go to first responders um, who really need them, um, as, as well as the elder, elderly and vulnerable populations that are more susceptible to the virus. And so the team got to work um, actually building out prototypes of face shields, uh, face masks, uh, suits that you could make from household materials. We have this guide online and I'm happy to send it to you. It's completely open source and anyone can use it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they began prototyping out. We had uh, people actually figuring out how to format the masks to the face because that's really important. I know the construction industry knows all about that with dust masks and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so people were microwaving um, cups in the microwave to see if they could, or in the oven to melt it to see if they could format inform it to the face. But ultimately we came down to um, about six different designs that we felt are the lowest common denominator that most everyone could do, uh, whether it be sewing a face mask, uh, building a face shield out of um, a 
two liter uh, soda bottle um, and or, or taking things like even plastic garbage bags and building out a tie back suit with duct tape. Um, they might sound simple in practice, but the team had to go through about probably about 10, 12 uh, revolutions of prototyping it to get it to a point where, um, although it is not obviously um, lab attested, we can't uh, do this for every home that, that is testing this out. It's a, it's a pretty good piece if you have absolutely no personal protective equipment or you are dedicating that personal protective equipment to responders. So that was one really interesting project that wasn't high technology, but it has become a great way to mm -hmm. release the stockpile. Yeah, that has a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also had, uh, let's see, what was another one that was just super interesting? Uh, there is obviously surge flow um, with healthcare hospitals, airports. Um, you might have seen what happened in city of Chicago with O'Hare uh, when they started doing testing and getting people through customs. Uh, just a bottleneck and certainly not because of, I mean, the responders, the police, the fire, uh, the emergency personnel, and the, the lady who actually runs and is the director of public safety, they did a fantastic job handling what was a surge of people through, through the airport. Um, but there were, a, there's a need right now to come up with ways to deal with spontaneous flow and surge of people. So uh, a team of, uh, you wouldn't believe this, but an orthonologist, a person who, who watches and studies birds, um, who had responded in Hurricane Harvey with us, along with people who deal with a lot of spontaneous flow and big special events, started studying human behavior and pattern and began building out uh, through computer-generated models, and this is still in the works to this day, um, we continue to prototype uh, what is happening, ways to follow the social distancing uh, parameters and the COVID-19 restrictions that we have in place because of the virus, um, but find ways to make it effective so that we have an efficient flow of spontaneous surge, whether it be in a terminal or in a community or even in a grocery store. So very, very interesting um, projects. And certainly we continue, we're on 2.0 of many of these prototypes and they're being implemented um, in communities uh, around the world. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, the PPE shortage made sense to me, especially in our industry, but I wasn't even thinking about you know, the surge of people and how you can support and manage that as well. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Wow. And all the, the challenges we've got, we have received have come from emergency directors and responders on the front lines. Wow. Very cool. I think it's, you know, we could, we could definitely argue that your role, you know, has never been so important as it is right now for us as a community and on a global scale as well. It's, it's crucial that we, we learn to figure this out and manage it so we can hopefully um, get a hold on this and, and say goodbye to COVID sooner than later. Yeah, we're definitely in this together. And the more we can work together and, and innovate together, the better we're going to be off uh, and the more resilient we're going to become. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I couldn't even, I couldn't think of a better way to end this conversation. It's, it's, I appreciate you joining us. I think you've worked on some amazing projects and you have such great insight into innovation and preparedness that we we definitely need to take away and i'm excited to have you back hopefully for another chat sometime 
I would love that. This has been such a pleasure, pleasure. And I, I really love what you guys do at dozer.com. I've been enjoying following um, on the website and the updates. And certainly you guys have been putting out some great information about the current virus and getting prepared. So I do appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope we get to do some more fun things, maybe deploy into a disaster. Yeah, definitely. We love that. We appreciate you following along for sure. And I'm sure this won't be the last that we'll, we'll be speaking. Thank you so much, Becca. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon, Desi. Sounds great. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you'd like to read more about Desi's thoughts on disaster preparedness and relief, you can check out the Dozer Hub at dozer.com slash blog under Dirt Stories. Follow us on Instagram at Dozer Hub for the latest news in the industry and follow our blogs and podcasts through the Dirt Stories hashtag on social media. Want to be featured on the podcast? Contact us via social media or contact us at dozer.com slash blog if you or someone you know has a dirt story to share. Today's episode was sponsored and produced by Dozer, the world's first online equipment rental experience. Visit dozer.com to learn more.